Hello everyone and welcome to Shot Reverse Shot. I'm Matt Risby, good evening, and joining me as always via the miracle of satellite technology, trapped in time, surrounded by evil, low on gas, it's Ed Davis. How the devil are you, sir? I'm very well. I'm pretty sure that that tagline is for the movie Army of Darkness. You're correct, Ed, you're correct. I'm starting to run out of like less obvious ones now. But that's it's weird that you would choose that because I've spent much of the last three days playing the Army of Darkness defense uh, tower defense game on my phone. <laughs> oh wow, it's a very weird coincidence. Yeah, that game's that game's super fun. If no one's played it, it's, it, it anyone listening is interested. It's uh, really difficult but really fun. Mm, I can imagine it's just endless hordes of skeletons and shit. Yeah, endless hordes of different kinds of skeletons, and you play Ash initially with a an iron fist that you used to punch people into shotgun, and then gradually you earn money, you can buy the chainsaw, you can upgrade your weapons, and then you also have all of these different troops that you call in to help you out that you upgrade. So it's it's one of those games where the difficulty to begin with feels very gentle, and you think, oh, this is pretty easy, and then you get to wave 35 and mm-hmm. you're dying almost instantly, and then you have to just keep playing to earn money with no hope that you're going to win <laughs> until until you reach a point where your men are powerful enough to progress to the next wave, and then it all starts again. So it becomes mm. a bit thankless, but it's still fun. Mm. Less thankless than the film, which is a lot of fun. Oh, yeah. Hugely yeah. enjoyable. That kind of mobile-based diversion aside with in-app purchases available um (laughs) we're kind of having a double celebration this week why are we doing that ed well this episode is 150 in our uh canon Uh, i think there's probably more than 150 in the feed because back in the early days we would do three-part episodes running Mm. down the year which was insane and i don't know why we ever thought that was the way that we wanted to introduce ourselves to the world Mm. was with a three-part episode about three hours long breaking down (laughs) the films of 2011 but uh, also because when people are hearing this on monday the 8th of august it will be my 30th birthday hooray yeah so i'm now thankfully outside of the most desirable demographic for advertisers so I think my understanding is that means I no longer have to see adverts. Is that is that how it works for people who are yeah, over 30? Yeah, I've not seen an advert for five to six years now. Um, <laughs> and it is coming in. The water is lovely, uh, this side of 30, Ed. Um, and as kind of regular listeners uh, will know, uh, when it's your birthday on this show, you get to talk about whatever the hell you want. So Ed has got the uh, dubious honour um, of being able to pick what on earth we can talk about on the 150th episode. What have you gone for? I've gone for the films of 1986, which, of course, was the year of my birth. And uh, this year is the 30th anniversary of 1986. So Mm. I figured it'd be a fun year to talk about. Yeah, and it was uh, interesting to kind of look at it because when we started talking about what we're going to do for this one, just running down the list of films that came out that year. It's not what you think about 1986. You're not thinking that it's instantly a classic year for cinema instantly, Mm. but then you look at the list and there were some pretty fucking good films out that year. Yeah. It's really strange because even when you look at the commercial stuff, you have stuff like Top Gun, which was the biggest film of that year. And is uh, probably one of the most iconic films of the eighties. I think it, it defined a lot of what the films that year looked like. 
and what they sounded like because of the the Kenny Loggins soundtrack, which I can now only think of in terms of Archer. Mm-hmm. Um, but then you also have things like Platoon, which was uh, you know one Best Picture, hugely successful. Uh, uh, Aliens, Ruthless People, which I think is a very underrated film. Ferris Bueller's Day Off, which is a film that I don't like as much as other John Hughes movies, but is probably the one that is alongside the breakfast club the most recognizable of his films Mm -hmm. uh but when you dig below that and start to look at what films were doing the art house circuit which directors were suddenly kind of breaking through that year uh it's it's kind of fascinating Mm. and it's what i found interesting is i looked at uh the films released in 1986 uh kind of like as in a complete list um and then looking at the list for this year and there are some really stark differences between the kind of release schedules of each of each year. Like, for instance, in 1986, there were only seven sequels released uh, over the, the calendar year, which kind of uh, seems kind of crazy now because we counted up on 2016 and we had surpassed that total by the time we reached March, which is uh, kind of like, a, I, I suppose... Um, you know the state of things now there weren't really any remakes or reboots or anything made in 1986 it just seems like a halcyon time of original cinema which is again when we sat down to to do this not something i connected with the year 1986 yeah and even when you do look at films like the handful of remakes that were there they're not you know they don't they're not the kind of the callous commercial remakes that we're perhaps more used to now they're things like the fly where you're taking a sci-fi film that was barely remembered but if it was remembered as this cheesy creature feature and you're reimagining it as a profoundly gross and disgusting meditation on aging and uh, and is often interpreted as a film about uh, a aids but it's certainly about you know disease and the way the body betrays you or you have something like a little shop of horrors where you have a adaptation of a stage musical which was based on a incredibly cheap roger corman movie from the 50s and it's not like anyone was sitting around saying you know what we have that's a really valuable ip Mm. little shop of horrors that's going to really get them in the seats but you you do have this incredibly inventive take on uh, material that no one was really talking about um and in terms of like original cinema it is startling when you look at the top 10 seven of the films released seven of the films that made up the top 10 in the u.s that year were original movies and there were only three sequels whereas if you compare it to 2015 which is the last year obviously we have the full data for the top 10 was made up of seven sequels one remake and two original movies Mm. so it's it's quite a stark turnaround Uh, and the 80s is kind of a maligned decade for cinema certainly american cinema but it's looking pretty good from from this vantage point, it has to be said. Yeah, yeah. One thing that was uh, incredibly refreshing to look at is um, the, the near complete absence of comic book movies. Mm. Um, obviously, they are very much uh, on vogue uh, right now. Um, but the one that there's only really one that sticks out to me in 1986. And when I tell you what it is, you'll probably kind of understand fully why there weren't more. Um, it was Howard the Duck. Um, the the kind of the much derided and you know rightly so because it's fucking terrible uh, comic book adaptation which uh, on paper seemed like just as bad an idea as in practice. <laughs> yeah, and the film that 
probably would have killed Tim Robbins' career if he didn't have uh, a small role in Top Gun in his back pocket. Mm. Yeah, it's weird that, that like you know his fortunes could be turned around so so kind of completely by kind of two a small a role that no one remembers that he's in either of those films. Um, <laughs> and there's a great story like uh, you kind of some of the listeners will probably know this, but. Uh, I think Tim Robbins, he was on a chat show in, in the UK and told a story about when he was working on that film. And there was just like real budget problems and, and there was they, they got stuck at a location or something overnight. So they had to go and try and find somewhere to sleep in the location. And <laughs> he went to sleep in like a toilet cubicle and he opened the door and there was like one of the duck stunt doubles still in a duck costume, just saying, get out of here, I'm sleeping in here. Just that <laughs> that idea that, that Tim Robbins was trying to find somewhere to sleep for the evening and there was a man in a duck costume in a toilet cubicle taking his seat probably sums up that entire film's production. That That is honestly more compelling than the film itself. <laughs> yeah. Do you think about Howard the Duck kind of poisoned the well for comic book movies or do you think that even for kind of looking at comic book movies as a whole, that was just a kind of a, an oddity? I mean, the comic itself is is weird, um, and not particularly thinking, oh, this will make a great movie. Um, but the film itself is a fucking disaster. Now, how long did it take for it to recover, really, before we were you know, prepared to go back into to comic book movies? Well, three years later, you had the Tim Burton's Batman. Mm-hmm. I don't know if there was anything big that came out in the years in between then. I guess you would have had... When did the last Superman movie come out, the last Christopher Reed? That was like 1987 or something? Oh, I kind of always thought it was a bit earlier than that, but it, it was yeah. certainly it wasn't uh, it wasn't exactly a golden age for the for the form. Um, mm. But even after Batman came out and Batman Returns, it took a long time for people to really crack the nut of how to do superhero films because immediately after that, you have things like The Shadow and The Phantom, mm. where they take incredibly antiquated comics that no one really knows and try to make them into commercial movies for the gen x uh the gen x audience and it doesn't quite work so it, it definitely feels like that may not have killed off interest in general because obviously studios were probably still trying to think of how to do a new batman or how to do the flash or something but it certainly didn't help the commercial prospects of, of that uh, that particular revenue stream for for a while Mm, mm. Yeah, it's kind of a refresh, refreshing look to to kind of have a little look down the list um, and see a lot of original films, like you say. We're big kind of proponents of the, the 1970s era, as we keep banging on about. Um, but it's kind of noticeable how some of the kind of the great auteurs of that movement um, started to kind of struggle and kind of find finding themselves a niche in the studio system after the kind of collapse of of uh, American Zootrope and, and after uh, Heaven's Gate and things. Those directors trying to find themselves niches in the studio system that they weren't perhaps in full control. You see uh, directors like Martin Scorsese doing uh, The Colour of Money, one of the seven sequels released that year, um, which is, you know, perfectly fine as a film, um, but not something you describe as, as his most personal work. Or uh, Francis Ford Coppola doing something like Peggy Sue Got Married, which is... A bit more personal, but still not quite. Any, well, still not anywhere near his kind of seventies output. Yeah, and and it's interesting for both of those filmmakers because they were both directors who closed out the seventies by making films that were wildly expensive that lost a lot of money, 
in, in New York, New York, and and one from the heart, and and Raging Bull to an extent, because I don't think Raging Bull was a particularly huge success when it came out, mm-hmm. and they both struggled trying to make low budget films that were a little more personal but also in, in Coppola's case he did just take anything that was handed to him because he had racked up incredible debts that he wouldn't clear until the, like the late 90s I don't think it was the the rainmaker I think was mm. the film that he made to to kind of tip him over yeah so they were they were both I guess auteurs in the original sense that in when people talk about people like Howard Hawks you know directors who were working in the studio system who were trying to put their stamp on it but who were probably being watched like watched with kind of hawk like intensity by the studio the studios who were like we know what happens if uh, you guys are not kept on a short lease we lose our shirts so mm. you know try and keep it all under control uh Hal Ashby also directed his final film that year 8 million ways to die a not particularly well remembered uh, noir starring Jeff Bridges uh, playing mm. the same character that Liam Neeson would then go on to play in the film A Walk Among the Tombstones, I believe. Is so, that true? I, I mean, I did, I've not. I have to say that kind of Hal Ashby. I, I've not. I've not seen that film. I don't think I saw his last two films. Um, but yeah, like even you saying that there, I just kind of even forgot it existed. And yeah. I thought you were talking about the Seth MacFarlane film. <laughs> no, he. It was a very uh, inglorious way for his career to end, and then a couple of years later, he died from cancer because mm-hmm. he didn't go to see a doctor because he was uh, a brilliant, brilliant filmmaker, but not great at personal choices in his life, which yeah. is a terrible shame because obviously he was, he was probably one of the greatest of the directors of the previous decade. Altman didn't direct anything that year, but he was in his basically making films in basements with film students uh, era. Uh, the only one from that era, from the seventies, who the only actually two people who really thrived were Steven Spielberg, who by that point was fully in mogul producer mode. Mm-hmm. Uh, he didn't direct any films that year, but he did produce The Money Pit, which was a big success. And he also produced An American Tale, which was, you know, the Don Bluth film that made a huge amount of money and was start was kind of the probably the peak of that run where they made a stab between him and Don Bluth of trying to rival Disney as the producers of hugely successful animated movies and also Woody Allen also that year uh, put out arguably his best film Hannah and her sisters but he was never really part of that 70s movement anyway he was doing his own thing off in New York pretty much with uh, a funding system that I don't understand I don't understand how he still makes money how he still makes movies and how he's been able to make a movie a year for like 30 something years but that Mm. was uh, kind of the peak of a very fruitful decade for him we're always told that Europeans love going to see his films. I don't think I've ever seen a Woody Allen film in the cinema. <laughs> um, you know, you always you kind of catch it when they come out. But like, you know, are they queuing around the block in France for, for Woody Allen movies? I've got no idea. But they seem to just stump up the money for it. You know, they'll fund anything. Yeah, his definitely do a lot better overseas than they do in the States now for various reasons <laughs> that we've, we've discussed in the past. Also, I think what's what's interesting that year, if you look at like the 10 biggest films of that year, uh, and I'll run them down, there's Top Gun, Crocodile Dundee, Platoon, Karate Kid Part 2, Star Trek Four: The Voyage Home, Back to School, Aliens, Golden Child, Ruthless People, and Ferris Bueller's Day Off. I think find it interesting that that year, five of the biggest films of the year were comedies. Mm. And comedies in speech marks, because one of those is Back to School. <laughs> yeah, and the other nom- is the golden child nominally comedies 
Yeah. Uh, and I guess there actually you probably could make a case for Star Trek Four because that's the whale one that is uh, mm. more overtly comic comedic than the one where one of the main characters dies horribly from radiation poisoning. Um, <laughs> yeah. But but it's interesting that to me because uh, I can't think of any of that happening. You know, in the last ten years or so, like it's very very rare that a comedy, a comedy, are on its own kind of will break into the top 10 uh except you know i think you know something like pixar or dreamworks that's probably like an edge case in the sense that they're not comedies that that are aimed at like those films that are aimed at a kind of an adult audience or even just a broader audience they are you know kids films that happen to be funny Mm. so you think about the, the the films the comedies that have made a lot of money uh, in kind of recent years would be stuff like, I don't know, Knocked Up uh, or Black American Pie, things like that, I guess. But or they're not going to trouble the top 10 or Hangover films. They're not going to trouble the top 10 in most years, are they? No. So I think it's very interesting because I don't usually think of the 80s as a kind of, especially comedic decade. I think people think of it in terms of high concept filmmaking and, and kind of the kind of perfection of the blockbuster formula. But when you look at the films that were being released there, a lot of people went to see comedies and they made huge amounts of monies. These films that didn't cost a huge amount and which usually were just based on the idea of we have a recognisable star who's probably from SNL or something uh, and a broad concept and then they would be hugely successful. Uh, and I find it very, very interesting to think how that has just that idea of a blockbuster comedy has pretty much evaporated by this point mm. and it's unusual that like crocodile dundee number in the number two spot there mm. that was a massive hit and given that it didn't star someone from snl it was a, a film that starred uh, a man from australia who even at the time of making crocodile dundee was about 85 years old um, and, you know, with no real cachet turning up. I mean, he's kind of a big comedian in, in Australia, I guess, and leads to the, my favourite punchline in the film Tropic Thunder. But, I mean, that's the thing. I mean, I, I've got a soft spot for Crocodile Dundee. I enjoy that film and I'm being serious when I say it's a better fish-out-of-water film than Lost in Translation. But, that, I mean, that film was huge. And and it had, even though, oh, obviously, I think Top Gun is probably the one that has the more iconic images. I mean, mm-hmm. uh, Crocodile Dundee has, you know, this is a knife. You call that a knife. This is a knife. Yeah. And him walking on people's heads when he's uh, trying to uh, meet with his girl, his love interest at the airport at the end. Mm. It hasn't really got striking images, but it did in a, a very real way fundamentally alter America's kind of cultural relationship with australia because from that there was a this this wave for sort of like three or four years of obsession with everything coming from australia musically filmically that's when you get things like yahoo series kind of coming over here to make a hollywood movie that's why you have outback steakhouses across the united states now because someone said hey why don't we make the most stereotypically Australian restaurant imaginable and not research it at all and just have tell people, yeah, this is what Australia is like. But that, like, that, that's a film that had like a really seismic impact in a way that very few films have now. Uh, and, and you're right, it's weird that that was the film that only barely got beaten out by Top Gun as the most successful film of that year. Mm. And if you think about it, I'm sure if you asked even people who have seen the film, people who have seen the film many times to name the 
the, the two leads, they probably couldn't. Mm. They'll just say that old Australian dude and the woman who, for some reason, gets down in a bikini to fill up a water bottle, um, <laughs> which is kind of crazy. Um, I, uh, Crocodile Dundee features like one of my favorite throwaway lines in cinema where he goes to some kind of like soiree and this <laughs> this old guy walks past him and he's clearly with a prostitute and Mick Dundee naively just says, oh, that's nice of her, dancing with her father. <laughs> I, just, <laughs> I, just, I just love that throwaway line because they don't make anything of it. Oh, it's very funny. I think Crocodile Dundee should, uh, should be rebooted with uh, Chris Hemsworth. Yeah, I think everything would be better with Chris Hemsworth, particularly if you're having him be Australian and funny. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which he is. You know, he's got <laughs> that down. Um, it's interesting you mentioned earlier the the Steven Spielberg uh, involvement in American Tale, uh, telling that American Tale came out the same year as Basil the Great Mouse Detective, mm. which is we we talk about Disney a lot, and you know we've kind of talked about the film Waking Sleeping Beauty quite a bit. Um, a film, a documentary, it was very good. You could check it out, everyone. Um, that kind of documents what was very nearly the end of uh, Walt Disney Animation Studios. And it was during that kind of mid-80s uh, time that they were really kind of going through it. They were actually thinking about closing after the, the kind of the abject failure of uh, The Black Cauldron, which is, I think, still the only Disney film to not make any money. Um, I mean, I'm sure they probably got it back somewhere, but yeah, it didn't go down great. Um but Basil the Great Mouse Detective was seen as a as maybe an attempt to return to something a bit more traditional, but they kind of ran out of money halfway through and slashed their budget. And it really tells that film is 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 quite shoddy in, in, in places, but then does feature some really kind of elaborate and good sequences. Three years away from The Little Mermaid, what does that kind of like animation face off between American Tale, which is also I watched that fairly recently. That's terrible. Um <laughs> What does that tell us about the state of animation in America? Was it just basically a low point? Because um, to mean to not see a Disney film in the top ten of a year seems crazy to me now. Yeah, I think it was. It was certainly a low point for Disney. I think the fact that they're uh, essentially a couple of guys in the, in the form of Don Bluth and Steven Spielberg could rival them just through their collaboration uh, is a sign of what a low ebb they were at. But also. Uh, I think, and, and this is something that I think you see in uh, when you look at some of the stuff that was happening under the radar, some of the films that were coming out from younger filmmakers or, or filmmakers who were trying to stage a comeback. It, it definitely feels as if they are trying something new. They are trying to reverse trends that have really hurt them over the year. And they're hamstrung because, like you say, they didn't really have the money uh, and they were fighting against decades of decay within disney in regards to their animated work but they were trying to do something kind of big and exciting and new uh, and uh, i think largely succeeding because that film is is really charming and fun despite its limitations and and the entire sequence in the uh in in the in big ben towards the end in the clock tower not Big Ben. I know Big Ben's the bell. In the clock tower at the end is, you know, like clearly the one that they had the most money for because that's a really stunning and, and brilliantly animated action sequence. Actually, Ed, Big Ben is the name of the monster. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, yeah, yeah that, that old joke. Interesting that just looking at the top 10, like generally that top 10 appears to be mostly made for adults. 
which mm-hmm. is something else that seems alien to us now with everything being skewed much younger. Because if you thought, if I think about anything post Jaws and Star Wars, I always think that, you know, the big films of any years after, any years after that that kind of decade will be for audiences of kind of like teenagers or kids. But it's pretty adult, this list. I mean, obviously not adult, adult. I mean, Nine and a Half Weeks was released in 86, but I'm not meaning that adult. I mean, film was made for grown-ups, not kind of idiots. And it is weird seeing Platoon, which won Best Picture that year, in the top three. Mm. Because we have we have definitely become accustomed to the idea... Uh, you know, Lord of the Rings and Titanic aside, that if a film wins Best Best Picture, it probably made about $10 million. Mm -hmm. You know, Spotlight didn't trouble the top 10 last year. Birdman didn't trouble the top 10 the year before. You know, if you just keep going back further and further, it's very rare to see a film that was a huge commercial success that also, you know, won Best Picture that year. And that seems to be something that happened a lot more in the past. Obviously, it didn't happen all the time you know it's it, the the uh crossover between commercial and critical or award success isn't exactly has never exactly been one-to-one but it is uh striking to see the a film that won best picture was also a film that did incredibly well with audiences hmm. i'm just trying to think about when the last time we would have had something like that would it be something like did american beauty make a lot of money that did really well um Return of the King was like huge. Mm. Um, Argo did well, but it was it was very much kind of like it did okay. Like mm. it made more than hundred million dollars, but that's not on the same level of Platoon, which made I think something like hundred and seventy million dollars, which would be more than three hundred million today. Right. Okay. Yeah. So it's not even in the same league. No. Very strange. Uh, what was the the kind of cinema scene like around the world? I noted that the, the the British film industry seemed to be quite predictably churning out two types of film, gritty realism or prestige dramas, plus Absolute Beginners. Yeah, Absolute Beginners, which is a crazy movie. Um, I, I just watched 20 or 30 minutes of it before we started recording, and it's like if someone decided to reimagine 1950s Britain as an MGM movie, an MGM musical crossed with a Shaw's Brother kind of kung fu epic, crossed <laughs> with a Fellini film that stars Lionel Blair. Mm. It is aggressively strange. Kind of mm. enjoyable, but but an incredibly weird movie. But you also have something like Mona Lisa, the uh, Neil Jordan movie with Bob Hoskins, which is uh, a wonderful movie. Like mm. one of the one of the great British movies ever. Bob Hoskins is is fantastic in it. But that again, it, it does kind of veer towards the gritty realism end of things, even if it's a little bit more poetic. Uh, and speaking of uh, po- poetry, you also have Derek Jarman, who uh, was obviously kind of doing a lot of stuff in the avant-garde underground scene that year. He put out Caravaggio, which is probably one of his his best films. Uh, so, and th- th- there's there's kind of things going on, but you know, the '80s, as bad as people think the '80s were for American cinema, for British cinema, is pretty terrible. Oh, also, uh, When the Wind Blows came out that year. Oh, cheery. Again, I mean, we're talking like your examples of like good films, Mona Lisa, Caravaggio and When the Wind Blows and then Rita Sue and Bob 2, which yeah. isn't a sequel, even though it sounds like it is. <laughs> but yeah, I think Room with a View was out that year. That was uh, a big, big crossover hit, wasn't it? I think uh, in terms of world cinema, you had 
the the kind of the twosome of uh, Jean de Flore and Manon de Source. That was a kind of big. Was it a better tomorrow? Or John Woo had had a film out, didn't he? Was it a better tomorrow? Yes, he put out a better tomorrow, which was probably one of the key films in his filmography because before then he was, I think, better known for directing comedies. He he had he had been a very successful comedic director and then his films had started not being as successful and then he switched it up and started going into action filmmaking and, and that was not only key for his career because it basically shaped everything he's done in the 30 years since but it also had a huge effect on just the action genre in general because of his films carrying over to American directors who watched them and mercilessly cribbed from him and also his own uh, american efforts when he he came over to the u.s in the 90s mm, yeah, yeah um what cleaned up at the oscars that year other than platoon paul newman got uh yeah, kind of a long overdue oscar well kind of the oscar he should have won for playing fast eddie in the first film i guess yeah that was the probably the most notable one and platoon was just a huge a huge success for Oliver Stone, who at that point had, he'd obviously written a few things. He'd written uh, Midnight Express, mm-hmm. I believe it is. I always get that mixed up with uh, with Midnight Cowboy for some reason. Uh, and also, he, but before then he'd done like a bunch of horror films that hadn't really been hugely successful. Uh, so that was kind of a banner year for him. Uh, and I'm just trying to find the goddamn page for the, the Oscars. Michael Caine won his, and Diane Weist for Hannah and Her Sisters. It was kind of three films, really. It was uh, Platoon, Hannah and Her Sisters, and Room of the View that took most of the awards. But then you've got the acting awards, Paul Newman won, um, and Marley Matlin won for Children of a Lesser God, a film that I have never seen and uh, know nothing about. Yeah, I've only seen Marley Matlin's acceptance speech, or, you know, where she obviously she signs what she wants to say in her... Uh, her translator says the words and then uh, that's the only thing I know about that film is it had a very notable speech because I don't think a, a deaf actor, certainly a deaf actor hadn't ever won before and I don't think a deaf person had ever won an Oscar before mm. Yeah um, but yeah that's a film that seems to have completely passed by. The Mission was out that year as well just noticing that was kind of like a big big epic and that reminds me that um, Scorsese's got a film out that kind of sounds quite similar to that this year yeah, Silence, which I think has been coming out for 20 years at this point. Yeah, it's getting that way. Yeah. Another film I was surprised to see in the kind of most successful films uh, is The Golden Child, mm. which is kind of interesting for quite a few reasons. One, we talk about uh, directors who came from the eight, uh, the 70s sorry, and, and how they fared in the 80s. This was directed by Michael Ritchie, who directed uh, The Candidate and Downhill Racer, and you know Fletch, you know a bunch of other good films. This is not a good film, uh, <laughs> and it was it starred uh, Eddie Murphy, who was coming off the back of Beverly Hills Cop, and it was the first thing that kind of moved him slightly more towards a family audience. Even though it was a film, I think that was originally supposed to star Mel Gibson or Sylvester Stallone, I think, and they kind of rewrote it for. I say rewrote it. They just changed the the uh, the lead actor to a black dude. And just said, Eddie, just just mumble your way through anything and just make this stuff up. We'll put you in Tibet and that'll be funny. And the end. Uh, and that film is fucking terrible. And I'll tell you for why. I've seen it like this film is terrible. And I've seen this film probably about 40 times. I watched it a lot as a kid. 
and I've seen it kind of like with nostalgia now. There's two things in there. One, Charles Dance, as a villain of the film, um, gets the name of a uh, thing wrong. It's the, the, the dagger that he's trying to get. It's the kind of the MacGuffin of the whole film. Um, he stumbles over his line, and they kept it in. Um, <laughs> it's later lay, lay on in the film. He very nearly starts the word again, um, but they kept it in. And secondly, there's a bit where Eddie Murphy has to cross a, a kind of like uh, a bottomless gorge standing only on kind of timbers to get across, and he's got a glass of water and he's not allowed to spill any. And I'm not one for pointing out film mistakes, but he obviously, and, you know, they don't attempt to hide the fact that he spills most of the glass of water as he goes across the room. And it shows that when he spills the water, something bursts into flames, and it's just shoddy filmmaking, Ed. (laughs) Uh, Also, that year, a terrible film that I know you've seen multiple times, Soul Man came out. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it, it's Soul Man is a film for those who don't know, a film which stars C. Thomas Howell, a, uh, a kind of notable teen actor from the time, who is a aspiring um, student with good grades, but can't quite afford the tuition fees, and nor can he get a scholarship. But then he does find out about a scholarship that is open at a very prestigious university, but unfortunately, it's only open to African American students. He is a Caucasian, so what does he do? He gets a Jerry Curl wig. And he, this is actually the plot device. He <laughs> overdoses on suntan pills to become a, <laughs> to become a African American student, and a, yeah, it is, the film is is beyond belief because it treads a very fine line of being a kind of a very awkward satire on racism, and being horrendously racist. <laughs> it, and it is it is truly truly unbelievable. Like when I describe that film to people, they don't think it exists, but it does. I've seen it like six times and I think it's on Netflix. Check it out. Although I'm, I feel bad for saying check it out because it's so awful. But yeah, I mean, that was a baffling film that came out then. But then didn't you say before we started recording this that, that Disney released Song of the South? Yes, this was firmly in the period which sadly doesn't exist where Disney used to re-release some of their old films every pretty much every year uh you know they would take them out of the disney vault which they still have even though we now live in a era of streaming and vh and dvd and Mm blu-ray and it doesn't make any sense but back in those days they would re-release their films they released three of them that year they released lady and the tramp which was the most successful song of the south which was the second most successful of them and sleeping beauty and uh, song of the south despite being a very notorious film for well-established reasons. I I watched that film quite a lot as a kid because we had it on VHS. It was released on VHS in the UK for reasons that are hard to fathom. Although, to be fair, the BBC did have the black and white minstrel show on television until 1978. So, mm-hmm. uh, so Disney releasing a film like Song of the South on VHS doesn't. It's not that surprising, I suppose, in the 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 kind of the dark days of the early 90s, but. Um, Yeah, so it came out and they re-released it and it was the 51st most successful film at the US box office that year. Wow. Which is, again, also it's crazy the idea that a re-release of a film could be that successful, but it is crazy that that is the film in particular that they decided to re-release and uh, apparently no one at the head office said, this is a bad idea, right? (laughs) (laughs) It's like, we're going to get in trouble if people watch this uh, outside of the original context of everyone being racist. Mm. We've judged the mood of the nation <laughs> and and the film that we really think we should re-release this year is Song of the South. 
Um, yeah, I didn't want to be the guy who pitched that. Looking at again, looking down the list of the most successful films, some of the films on there are surprising. But then, if you look at some of the films that didn't make it onto that list that that people kind of cherish now, I'm very surprised that those films didn't make it. Something like Labyrinth, for example, was released mm. in 1986, which now to me just seems like that's always been a huge success. But I don't know whether that kind of lived more on video or whatever, um, or something like Stand by Me. Yeah, Stand by Me, which was. Which did well, but I think it's it's definitely one of those ones that its reputation has grown in a huge way through VHS. It, though Labyrinth and Stand by Me both strike me as movies that were probably big hits at you know at sleepovers and things when they became available on VHS and became kind of probably you know cultural touchstones for an entire generation. Certainly, Stand by Me was one of those ones that I remember watching in school for some reason i think you know one of those days where they just decide we're going to put on a video and you know leave us alone we've got a hangover or something um Mm. but like that was one that i think was hugely uh, impactful for a lot of people but that it didn't necessarily find its audience uh in in the theaters Mm. Uh, Highlander and Short Circuit as well were were released this year i'm surprised that neither of those made the top 10 list i seem to remember Short Circuit being massive and and it gave us the uh, sequel with Fisher Stevens, uh, even more prominently featured as a white man playing an Indian character. Mm. And, and Highlander, of course, spawned a huge multimedia franchise that encompassed like four feature films and then a live action TV series and a cartoon series. And it's been, they've been trying to remake it for a long time. But yeah, like you say, that film wasn't as big as a hit as you would have expected, considering... Mm everything that came afterwards. Mm. And, I mean, is it as bad as Fisher Stevens playing an Indian guy that Sean Connery was playing like a Spanish dude, isn't that? I've never been able to tell what the hell his ethnicity is meant to be. Because isn't he also meant to be from Egypt as well? Yeah. Some, some, and obviously, I mean, that's setting aside a Frenchman playing a Scottish lord. Mm. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah, they've really got the... They probably should have just swapped those roles around. Because, like, Christophe Lambert is French... Uh, and he, but he could probably play Spanish at a pinch. But, mm. um, you know, Sean Connery is genuinely Scottish. That is the one accent he can do. Yeah, and Clan- I don't know where exactly Clancy Brown is meant to be from. Mm. But he's he's from Clancy Brownvania because mm. no one else sounds like Clancy Brown. You see, they had uh, the 30th anniversary re-release of, of Highlander this year and they kind of showed it at cinema somewhere in America and Clancy Brown turned up to introduce a screening in a kilt. <laughs> I thought that's, that's a pretty solid move. Um, they threw someone off the roof, um, <laughs> probably. Um, in today's modern age of films being made about, you know, Lego and fucking toasters and all that shit, um, weird to see that uh, in the 80s, uh, just in just as a kind of a weird outlier for this this year, as a, as a kind of a weird fringe case of, of, of what was not usual, we had three films based on toy ranges. Uh, the Transformers animated movie, My Little Pony, uh, animated movie and Care Bears, I think two Care Bears two possibly, which is uh, that seems like a very strange thing. It's a very real blip. That's not something that is was common during the eighties. No, and also, but they were also related to hugely successful TV series. But I don't know, did they come after those? Possibly. I guess the I guess the trans I think the Transformers TV series started before the movie because Optimus Prime dies in it. Oh whoa! And- spoilers, Jesus said. <laughs> but then. 
I remember a plot line of the cartoon series revolved around them then trying to revive him and there was some sort of virus or something. Mm. But that was, it was very much a case of, an early case of people trying to do cross media and cross, uh, uh, cross platform kind of pollination or whatever and just trying to maximize their brands and other buzzwords that don't mean anything, you know, just trying to do everything. And it not quite working. They, they wouldn't uh, really hit on that formula for another 10 years or so mm. so there's a there's signs of terrible things to come in those releases but you know, they hadn't quite got there do you know who was in Care Bears the movie as a voice don't you uh, I'm going to guess Keith David mm, no Harry Dean Stanton oh wow he's in yeah. everything to be <laughs> well yeah, yeah and he's still going uh, he's still kicking around like what kind of uh, inkling we didn't really have the, the kind of indie boom uh, until kind of the end of the 80s and the start of the 90s but there were kind of some kind of seedlings planted there especially with the uh, spike lee had his first film out yeah she's got to have it came out that year and was a big certainly a big uh, critical success and i think it did it did fairly well uh, you also had david lynch coming back off of dune which was a huge flop and a film that he by all accounts wasn't particularly happy with he came back with blue velvet which was nominated for a bunch of oscars which is weird because mm-hmm. that is a film that you would not expect to do well with an Oscar audience, uh, but is is incredible. Uh, Jonathan Demi, who had been around for about about a decade at that point, doing stuff with like Roger Corman, like so many other directors of that era. He'd done stuff like Citizen Band, which was a, a very kind of a cult film, but he did Something Wild, which is probably his best film. Or it's certainly one of them. Mm. Came out that year and was, was a success. You had Stuart Gordon followed up Reanimator with From Beyond, which is a beautifully gory and horrifying movie. Uh, and then kind of, and also you had Gus Van Zandt did uh, Malinotcha, which was his debut movie. So there's a lot of people who, in a very short period of time, would come to dominate the certainly the indie sphere but also you know if you look at someone like james cameron who was only on his third film directing aliens Mm. which would give him the leg up to then make the abyss a few years later and then terminator 2 and then be one of the most commercially successful filmmakers of all time in a very short order Mm. go back to kind of blue blue velvet for a second i always like to tell the story of my old housemate dean who uh asked me what would be good for a date movie (laughs) <laughs> and uh, I think I gave him a bunch of options. And then the next day I was like, what did you watch? He was like, we watched Blue Velvet. And I was like, wow, how'd that go down? He was like, that did not go down well. Uh, <laughs> which is unsurprising. And yeah, don't do that, guys, because it's, it's fucking weird. Jim Jarmusch also had Down by Laura out in 86. Mm. Kind of, I think that was his second or third film we, we said before the show. Um, but kind of probably his most distinct and, and kind of famous one. Um, do you think that you know, those film successes... Um, did start to kind of uh, kind of the ripple effect that we got two years later with Sex Lies and Videotape, and then a couple of years after, uh, you know, Reservoir Dogs and the Lot. Yeah, I, I absolutely think that they were part of that very slow build towards the golden age of of American indie movies in the late eighties and early nineties, because all of those people would seize upon those opportunities when they came up when studios would come knocking to give them the chance to make movies with bigger budgets or to distribute their small films that they want their small personal films and get them in front of as as big an audience as they could manage but they certainly are underneath and kind of rumbling underneath were were proving that people were looking for new and original voices in in american cinema uh and you know 
providing the inspiration for people like Tarantino to like make his own little homemade movie that I believe was only ever half finished, but provided him with his kind of foot in the door to as a screenwriter or Robert Rodriguez or Richard Linklater, all of these guys who were looking at what was going on uh, and seeing that, and later Kevin Smith, I guess, uh, seeing that there were, you could make different kinds of movies and, and really seizing on those opportunities in the years to come. Mm, yeah, yeah. It's, it's weird. Like I said, I compared uh, 86 to, to kind of this year as well. And like the one thing that is a big difference, even though that, the box office nowadays is dominated by kind of effects driven blockbusters and kind of huge franchise pictures. There's a lot more kind of indie films seeing releases now than there was in the mid eighties. Hmm. Yeah. And I kind of, I think that that was probably just the way it was and the studios made a lot more films and didn't have the mini majors competing until that nineties boom kind of kicked it all into action. Yeah, and, and there was, I mean, we've talked about this before and, and people have written about the, the death of the mid-budget movie. Mm. And there used to be a sense that people like David Lynch or John Waters, people could make movies for 10, 15, 20 million dollars and they would make like a tidy profit. They wouldn't be huge, but they would be good for the overall health of the studio in terms of reputation and in terms of maybe they'll garner rewards or critical notices uh and you know they'll make a tidy profit because they don't cost a huge amount so the the risk isn't too bad so if you're making 10 20 million dollar movies and they all turn a little profit then it's much less of a risk than one 200 million dollar movie which could lose you everything Mm. Uh, and at a certain point the economics changed completely and it became a case that all studios are really interested in is that 200 million dollar movie that could make a huge amount of money and that i think mainly seems to stem from the fact that the international marketplace wasn't as big back then Mm, yeah yeah. you really needed to try and make as much money in america as possible and it made more sense to make a movie for 20 million dollars that could earn 40 million dollars because there was no guarantee that a hugely expensive movie would see its money back in america and you know foreign audiences wouldn't really provide them with much uh either way mm-hmm, absolutely we're dear listeners we are going to leave uh 1986 here because we are going to pick up uh the second half of this uh with a with a kind of more in-depth discussion of two films we haven't talked about that came out in 1986 in next week's little mini episode so uh, until then let's have some recommendations Ed, and we're going to pick something from 1986 uh, to recommend to the good listeners at home. Uh, what have you got? I'm going to recommend one of Pedro Almodovar's film that came out that, sh- that year called Matador, mm. which is, I believe, the first film he made with Antonio Banderas, who would become his kind of one of his most frequent collaborators over the next 25 years, uh, you know, doing a bunch of films with him from there up until The Skin I Live In, which came out in 2011, I want to say. Uh, I'm pretty sure we talked about it on that very long episode <laughs> that we mentioned earlier. But uh, yeah, that that is comes towards the end, the tail end of his crazy period. You know, uh, Pedro Almodovar came out of the collapse of Franco's Spain and this under underground cult punky DIY scene that emerged in the immediate uh, under Franco and then fried and burst out once his regime kind of fell apart. And as he made more films, he did stuff like um, uh, Labyrinth of Passion and, and Kika and things like that. He became more, uh, he became more technically proficient, I guess he became more of a stylist and he moved away from this, scrappiness and he, he then then you see him 
emerge as a more mature artist in the 90s with things like All About My Mother. But this is kind of firmly uh, a nice transitional point for him where there is still a craziness to it. This is a story about a woman who kills men whilst having sex with them by stabbing them in the back of the neck, much as a matador would stab a bull in the back of the neck to kill it. And also it has people with psychic powers and it's, you know, like the best of our mode of ours kind of high camp stuff. It's, it's completely crazy, but it's, it's a hugely enjoyable movie and maybe not the most accessible of, of our mode of ours films, but if anyone has seen some of his more recent stuff, it's uh, i think it's a, it gives you a nice taste of his his early period when he was much more of a provocateur than he would he would become in in kind of the last 10 15 years mm, cool man uh, i'm going to recommend something uh, entirely different the the genre picture the hitcher um which is a uh, kind of really tidy little film uh, very, very kind of relentlessly paced uh, very tense chase movie essentially it's kind of uh, an interesting companion piece to the, the Spielberg film Jewel uh, instead of a truck it's Rutger Hauer um, a hitcher the titular hitcher <laughs> I can't believe <laughs> um, I'm going to recommend a picture it's the titular hitcher um, um, yeah he, he plays a hitcher he hitches a ride with C. Thomas Howell who thankfully is not in blackface uh, during this film because um, you know that would have just been plain silly uh, picks him up. Uh, he's a psychopath. Uh, threatens to kind of stab him in the eye in the first scene, practically. Um, and then it kind of doesn't let up from there. Um, and I think what sets it apart is that Rutger Hauer's performance is genuinely creepy as fuck. Like, there's a bit where uh, C. Thomas Howell is supposed to kind of spit in his face. And I think Rutger Hauer in, in, the, in the film said, actually spit in my face, come on, let's make this look real. So he does. And... He doesn't flinch at all, and then he just picks the spit off with his hand and starts licking it. I was like, that's fucking creepy, man. Don't do that. That's horrible. Um, and features a great ending, and then they remade it like a few years ago with Sean Bean in, and it weren't as good. Uh, who'd have thought? Um, but yeah, it's a really, really good film, uh, written by Eric Red as well, who uh, kind of wrote a whole bunch of crazy kind of 80s films. Um, so yeah, that's well worth a look in, despite its kind of rather tawdry credentials. But yeah, cool, guys. We're going to come back uh, next week with the second half of this episode. We're going to be talking about two films we didn't really get into. We're going to be talking about Aliens and Top Gun uh, in a bit more detail. So until then, it's goodbye from me. And goodbye from me. And goodbye from me.